0: Good morning. Good morning. Thank you to Mike and to Pam for leading us in worship this morning. Oh Holy Night, I think it's just a song that sounds better when it's sung by a group over when it's just one artist. Uh, and it's definitely one of my favorites. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning, finishing up Matthew chapter 1. we we'll looking at verses 18 to 25 Happy belated birthday to Carrie She turned 29 yesterday That's Plus. How old my wife is. Yeah <laughs> I've been for years <laughs> Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. 29 is a common age, I've noticed, for, for women. <laughs> Matthew chapter 1. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son. And he called his name, Jesus. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, once again we thank you for this time of year. And may we remember that Jesus is the reason for the season, that he is the Lord and Savior of the world. Lord, And may we rejoice in that. May we believe in that. May we remember that. Lord, we want to pray for the budget hearing tonight, Lord. And we just thank you for this church and for the resources that we have. And just want to trust that that will go well. Lord, we pray for the gifts that people have brought for children in the community. Lord, that those would just be such a blessing to those kids, Lord. And I'm so thankful and always inspired by people's generosity. Lord, we pray for our time today as we worship through your word. May we be pointed to you. Lord, whatever we've got going on in our lives, in our families, with our work, in our circumstances, Lord, may we dedicate this time to you and focus on you and knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So we're continuing in our Advent series through the birth story of Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew. We spent the last two weeks looking at the genealogy of Jesus. And you all lived to talk about it. Now we come to the prelude to Jesus' birth. This week we look at the events leading up to the birth of Jesus. Next week, Lord willing, we look at the aftermath of the birth of Jesus. Matthew does not actually record the birth itself that's exclusively in Luke's gospel. In the opening genealogy, we see the names of Mary and Joseph, but in today's section, we see the responses to the truly unbelievable news that Mary is going to have a child who has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. She is going to be the mother of the Christ child. And those three people are who we're going to focus on this morning. And we're going to take them in the order that their stories are found in the passage. Mary and Joseph. And we finish up where the passage ends with in Jesus. And with that, we'll jump into our section this morning. Looking at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So we first meet Mary. I've mentioned before that of the four Gospels, only Matthew and Luke give these stories about the birth events of Jesus. Luke's gives a lot more information on Mary. Matthew's Gospel has more of a focus on Joseph. The passage says that Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal is a type of formal engagement. It's still practiced today in some circles of Christianity and Judaism. I'm going to talk for a moment about what betrothal would have looked like in the first century. In his commentary on Matthew, Grant Osborne gives some helpful notes on betrothal. Betrothals were arranged marriages, arranged by families the betrothal or engagement period lasted for a year. That's something certainly that's very different from our society. Um, Something else that's very different from our society is that in a betrothal, the bride was usually only around 12 years of age. So it's likely that Mary was very young. During the betrothal period, the bride would still live with her parents The groom, in this case Joseph, was probably around 18 years of age. The groom would be older in order to be a little bit more established. Again, certainly both very young by our standards. But it's important to remember that it's a different time, it's a different culture. They had a different concept of adulthood and coming of age than we do. And life expectancies were shorter. As I already said, betrothal was a formal engagement... In our society, if two people are engaged, someone can break it off really for any reason. Not so in first century Judea. To break off a betrothal, you had to give them a formal writ of divorce. You couldn't just decide that you didn't like them or didn't want to marry them. It wasn't that simple. It was a binding commitment to marry that person. The text says, before Joseph and Mary came together, she was found to be with child. That is clearly a reference to before they had consummated their relationship. Mary became pregnant. Matthew's gospel says, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, it's pretty amazing. Up until the resurrection of Jesus... The virgin conception is the most significant event that has ever happened in human history, and Matthew here mentions it almost in passing. Nothing fanciful in Matthew's language. He lets the event speak for itself. There's no need to oversell it. Mary is pregnant with a child that has been conceived through God's Holy Spirit. Now, before we move to Joseph... I want to talk for a moment about Luke's account because it gives some additional details. I don't have a slide for this, but Luke 1, verses 26 to 35, also describes Mary's pregnancy and her response to it. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Mary is told about the child she will carry. She asks the obvious question. How's that going to happen? I'm a virgin. But Matthew and Luke both say how it's possible that Mary could be with child. The child has been conceived of the Holy Spirit. The Lord is at work with this. Humanity could not have made its own savior. It needed the intervention of God. And with that, we come to our second person, Joseph. And when we pick up with Joseph, he knows that his betrothed is pregnant. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. With Mary pregnant, Joseph faced a dilemma what does he do? They lived in a small town. Inevitably, Mary was going to start to show. We live in a small town. I've learned in two years in a small town, word gets around. When Carrie was pregnant, sometimes people would say, "Hey, congratulations on the baby," and I'd say, "Thank you," and I'd think, "Who are you? I don't." Word gets around, and so a pregnant Mary would lead one to believe one of two things. Either Mary had been unfaithful to Joseph, or that Joseph and Mary together had violated the betrothal custom and conceived a child together, which wasn't true, but both of those look bad. Now, in our day, we live in a society with very relaxed sexual ethics, to our detriment. But that was not the sensibility in first century Greco-Roman Palestine. Now, Jewish teaching at the time essentially forbade Joseph to marry a betrothed who had been unfaithful. So take all of these verses together. Verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, I think that's pretty honorable for Joseph. Joseph did not want to cause a huge public embarrassment for Mary. He didn't want to make a spectacle. He didn't want to humiliate Mary. But the text says he was a just man. What does that mean? In this context, it meant that he could not ignore her apparent sexual sin because he was a faithful Jew who adhered to the law and teachings of the Old Testament. So Joseph initially Does not see it as an option for him to marry Mary. But he doesn't want to shame her either. So he just wants to sort of quietly break off the betrothal so that both parties can leave as painlessly as possible. Quick side note sometimes people will note that Mary's apparent adultery was a capital offense and she would have faced stoning. It's partially correct. It's true that death was the penalty for adultery in the Old Testament. But by the first century, under Roman rule, it seems that it would have been uncommon in practice. Even when the Jewish leaders sought to have Jesus crucified, they had to ask the Roman government for permission. They couldn't just do it on their own. So it's unlikely that Mary would have actually faced that. But back to Joseph. There appears to be a sensible course of action until Joseph himself is greeted with the most unexpected of news. An angelic messenger appears to him in a dream. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Lord can so quickly change our plans. As Matthew's Gospel heralds the news of Christ coming into the world, he records several angelic encounters, specifically in dreams. That's a means of divine communication which we see in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament is found exclusively in Matthew's gospel. Now, angelic encounters in the Bible are often these glorious, terrifying, awe-inspiring events. But in Matthew, the angelic visitations are always merely to communicate a divine message, and that's all Matthew focuses on. The angel identifies Joseph as the son of David. That is the only place in this gospel where that term is used for anyone other than Jesus. Jesus. But it also reminds us of the significance of Joseph's lineage in the incarnation. Because it is Joseph who is the descendant of David. Luke chapter 1 verse 27 that we quoted earlier says that Joseph was of the house of David. It is through Joseph that Jesus is connected to David. And Joseph is told not to fear taking Mary as his wife. The reason he needs to be told not to fear is that the religious and social expectation would be that Joseph would not take Mary to be his wife. For the town gossips in Nazareth, the explanation that Mary was pregnant with a child that had been conceived by divine conception is not exactly the easiest story to believe. So to marry Mary... Is also to have to deal with the social ostracism of marrying an apparent adulteress. But Joseph is told not to fear. Now, just because he's told not to fear taking Mary as his wife, that does not mean it's going to be easy. God's will is not always easy. Now, we don't know a ton about Joseph after Jesus was born. But the Gospels do give us a few snapshots of his life. And it was hard. In Luke's narrative, when Jesus was born, there's no room for them. A story that I plan to preach Lord willing on Christmas Eve. But when Jesus is a baby, King Herod has heard about this child who's been born to be the king of Israel. And he has all the young males in Bethlehem killed. The family is forced to flee and exile in Egypt. So, we have this inhospitable world of danger and exile, hardships that they face. Church tradition holds that by the time Jesus began his ministry, Joseph is already deceased. But Joseph is told to fear not because he is following the will of God. But again, that doesn't mean that following God's will is always easy. The disciples followed the Lord. But they had lives of difficulty and persecution, ultimately leading to the martyrdom of all but one of them. We celebrated Thanksgiving a couple weeks ago. I think about the pilgrims who came to this country in the 17th century. They came here in order to live out their faith. And they probably never could have imagined the rich religious history that they would instill in this nation that has gone on for hundreds of years since their time. Was it wrong that they came? Was it a bad idea that they came? No. But by the next winter, half of them had died. They had lives of hardship. I think of the great missionaries over the centuries, people who were serving greater purposes than themselves, but the centuries of missionaries who faced persecution and death for that calling I read about the great missionaries, the work they did, the challenges and the hardships that they faced. Father Damien was a priest who served a leper colony in Hawaii. He served people who were the outcasts of society. And he himself contracted leprosy in 1885. But he continued to serve there until his death four years later. Maria Taylor was the wife of Hudson Taylor, perhaps the most well-known missionary of the 19th century. Hudson ministered in China. Maria herself had been the daughter of missionaries. Born in Asia, her parents both died when she was a child. She was sent back to England to be taken care of by family, but married Hudson at the age of 16. They moved to China, faced opposition, persecution, financial hardships. Of the nine children she birthed, only four survived to adulthood. She herself died of cholera at the age of 33. That's so often not the picture that we have today of the Christian life sacrifice, difficulty, hardship. Why would anyone want that? Because of the great God that we serve. Because of the great Savior that we have in Christ. Because of the great cost that He paid for forgiveness. God gives grace, His power is perfected in our weakness. God sanctifies us through our difficulties. As we serve the Lord through challenges and walk with Him, it is also the opportunity to grow with Him. It makes no sense in the eyes of the world. But God is the only thing that truly matters. And if all we have is God, that is all we need. Again, in the eyes of the world, that's laughable. It's worthy of mockery. Why would a good God allow His most sincere followers to suffer? Because it's a byproduct of doing ministry in a world that has fallen. We have a Savior who can identify. Jesus went to the cross. He suffered. Everything in life that's truly worth doing involves difficulty and hardship. Marriage is a great blessing. Marriage has its difficulties, its difficult seasons, difficult conflicts. Because it's two sinful people trying to do life together. But it's worth it. Having kids is a great blessing, but it's hard. Now, no one forces you to get married, no one forces you to have kids. You choose those things, even though they're difficult. I think of those great missionaries. They had difficult lives, but still, they were the lives that they chose. They could have walked away. They could have left the mission field. At the first sign of danger or death, they could have given it all up. But things that are worth doing are hard. Personally, I'm fascinated by the Navy SEALs. I'd like to think I could have been one, probably not. I've read several books by Navy SEALs. They talk about their training. And one of the really interesting observations I've heard them make when they talk about the difficulties of their training, most famously, Hell Week, they call it. They're up for basically five straight days, just a few hours sleep, near constant exercise and calisthenics and swimming and running, pushing people to the limits of what is possible. That's what it takes to be elite. But here's the thing, it's completely optional. And I've read accounts from Navy SEALs talking about going through the training. And they're more tired than they've ever been. And they're colder than they've ever been. And they're in more pain than they've ever been. And they keep going despite the fact that they're thinking, I can just quit, I can just give up at any time. No one forces you to become a Navy SEAL. If you quit, the instructors aren't gonna beg you to come back. We can quit any time. The challenges we face bring blessings in spite of hardship. And truly living for God in spite of difficulties brings the blessing of knowing God and growing with God and living to the glory of God. It's not always easy, but it is always worth it. A couple summers ago, we talked about Jesus and the disciples when they got caught in a tremendous storm. Why were they on the boat? Because Jesus led them there and put them on the boat. Last fall, we talked about the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. Why were they at the banks of the sea between the water and the Egyptian army? Because that was where God had led them. God is not always leading us to what is easy, but he is always leading us to what is right. And so Joseph is told not to fear, not because it will necessarily be easy but because of who God is and who our God is. As we continue in the passage, Joseph is given one of the great blessings in all of human history. That he would be the parent, the adopted parent, of the true son of David. Verse 21. The angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, The name Jesus means the Lord's salvation. Jesus has a special name that points to his ministry in the world. Joseph would not get to choose the name of this son, but the name was given. The angel's elaboration is that Jesus will save his people from their sins. Again, that points to his ministry and purpose. Jesus came to the world to save the world. Now, it's easy for us to take that for granted. But I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Many thought that the son of David would come primarily as a king and a military leader who would lead to political conquests. But the reason why Jesus came was to save people from their sins. And so Matthew reiterates his name and his purpose. We come to our third person in this passage. Jesus himself, verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew makes similar statements throughout his gospel. When he will point to something in the life of Jesus and then point to where it is grounded in the Old Testament and prophesying about Jesus. This is the first of those instances, but Matthew actually does it 13 times throughout his gospel. But five of those 13 are in the first two chapters. Matthew's gospel is very much grounded in the Old Testament. That's not to say that there isn't a lot of Old Testament emphasis in the other Gospels. There is. But Matthew especially likes to look at events in the life and ministry of Jesus and show where they fit into the Old Testament, where they were prophesied about centuries before. And so Matthew gives that precursor before referencing Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, The way Matthew quotes it, in verse 23, says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, two years ago, my first year here, we spent Advent looking at those passages in Isaiah, if you remember. They're still available on our podcast. Now, the Isianic prophecy that Matthew is giving comes more than 700 years before Jesus. Let's talk about that for a moment in the context of Isaiah. And I've tried to limit myself to about five minutes. I'll made some slides that will hopefully be helpful. But I think it's worth taking a moment to remember the historical theology of what's happening that Matthew is referencing. So, 8th century BC, Israel is a divided kingdom. The Davidic monarchy rules Judah, the southern kingdom. The king is a man named Ahaz, who's not a good king. Now, the regional superpower at that time is Assyria. Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel try to form an alliance against Assyria. And they want Ahaz, the king, in the southern kingdom to join King Ahaz is given a divine promise that they will prevail, and he's told to ask God for a sign. Ahaz refuses, but he refuses because he doesn't trust the Lord and will try to do things instead his own way. Instead of trusting the Lord, he will actually pay off the Assyrians with the gold and silver of the temple not to attack. So the Lord tells Ahaz to ask for a sign. Ahaz refuses. A sign is given anyway. Isaiah 7, 13 and 14. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, when we looked at this passage a couple years ago, I talked about this prophecy having a double fulfillment. In other words, it's fulfilled in the 8th century BC, and it's fulfilled again in Christ. For its first fulfillment, the Emmanuel prophecy is given in Isaiah 7. In Isaiah 8, the prophet Isaiah's wife has a baby. The baby is named, if you remember, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. In Hebrew, that name means quick to plunder, swift to spoil. And the point is that it's a judgment against the northern kingdom, the other kingdom, the northern kingdom and Syria of their impending destruction. Israel's, I'm sorry, Isaiah's son represents Emmanuel in the Old Testament. So Emmanuel is... Less a first name and more a title. There's no one in the Bible named Emmanuel. But it's what it represents that matters. The name Emmanuel, as Matthew tells us, means God with us. God was with Ahaz and the southern tribes, despite their unfaithfulness and sin. Now, a century later, the southern kingdom would face judgment too. But God preserved the monarchy. So that's the first fulfillment in what it meant in the days of Ahaz. But it also points forward to the greater Emmanuel to come. And it clearly points forward because in Isaiah 9, which we also talked about a couple years ago, the prophet points to a great king who will have a never ending kingdom. It points to a child who will be born and rule the throne of David. We quoted this also a couple of weeks ago. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is fulfilled by the second Emmanuel. So, back in Matthew now, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord, had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew shows that Isaiah is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us, literally. God who came into the world. That is why he is the greater Emmanuel, because Jesus is God with us. And the sign that authenticates his incarnation into the world is that he will be born of a virgin. This part I saw a discussion in one of my pastor Facebook groups yesterday that a pastor should never, ever, ever mention the Hebrew or the Greek in a sermon. You know what I say to that? Their churches aren't as smart as this church. (laughs) In Isaiah, the Hebrew word for virgin is the word Alma. Alma in Hebrew does not specifically mean virgin. It refers more to a young unmarried woman Who you would assume would be a virgin in that ancient time. In English, the word virgin refers to someone who is sexually chaste. Uh, But again, in Hebrew, it refers more specifically to a young woman. So, would the average person walking around Israel in the 8th century BC have thought that Isaiah was talking about a virgin birth? Probably not. But here's what's interesting when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, which was a couple centuries before Jesus, when they translated Alma, the Greek word that they use actually does more specifically mean virgin. So to someone who had a Greek Old Testament, their reading in the centuries leading up to Christ would have said that a virgin will conceive and bear a son and his name will be Emmanuel. Emmanuel. So you have the Isaiah prophecy, given eight centuries before Jesus. You have the Greek translation, a couple centuries before Jesus. Matthew was quoting the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And he's saying that all along, this passage ultimately pointed to a virgin being the mother of the true Emmanuel. By the way, most of the time in the New Testament, when they're quoting from the Old Testament... Almost always they're quoting from the Greek translation of the Hebrew. So Jesus represents the Emmanuel prophecy of the Old Testament. But his name is not to be Emmanuel, but to be Jesus. And we come to the final two verses of the passage. The angel of the Lord told Joseph not to fear taking Mary as his wife. Verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph is obedient to the Lord. We see his faithfulness to God. Joseph, the son of David, takes Mary, who is pregnant with the Christ child, to be his wife. Verse 25 says that he did not know Mary until she had given birth to a son. Once again, clearly, that is an ancient euphemism. They did not consummate the relationship until after she had birthed Jesus. But at that point, there's no reason to think that they did not after they were married. I point that out because some... In particular, the Catholic view is that Mary, for her whole life, remained a virgin. There's no reason to think that. Also, the New Testament makes reference to Jesus having other siblings. Um, So we see in these last verses that Jesus comes as Emmanuel. But he's given the name Jesus. And in those two names, we see who Jesus is and what Jesus does. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And He is Jesus. He is the Lord's salvation. He's God with us, and that He invites us to be with Him. He's the Lord's salvation, and that He saves us from our sins. He's God with us, and that He came into our world. He's the Lord's salvation, and that He was rejected by our world. But in his reject- rejection, he died sinless so that the sinful could have their sins forgiven. The message of Christmas is meaningless without the message of the cross. Because it's not just a quaint and cozy story. But Christmas invites us to remember Emmanuel, the God who came into our world to bring the Lord's salvation. And the Christ who brought the Lord salvation and dying so that we could have life. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for this time of year. To so many, it means so much. Lord, that for us, may it also be a reminder of your gospel. More than anything else, Lord, may this time of year remind us that the Savior of the world came into the world, that he was born of a virgin Lord, the great miracle that you did, but the greater miracle that was to come, that he would die and raise again so that all of us could have life through him. All of us who believe in him could have life and our sins forgiven. To the glory of your gospel, in Jesus' name, amen.